morning we're going to read from First uh, Peter chapter 2. Although the focus of the message is on verses 11 and 12, we want to begin reading in verse 9 to give a little more context. Would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to obtain from the passion to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. In a recent article in the National Review, David French observes, as our culture changes, secularizes, and grows less tolerant of Christian orthodoxy, I'm noticing a pattern in many of the people who fall away. They're retreating from faith not because they're ignorant of its key tenets and lack the necessary intellectual theological depth, but rather because the adversity of the adherent to increasingly countercultural doctrine grows too great. You got that? <laughs> what he's saying is, he is seeing people fall away from the faith, not because they're rejecting the doctrine or the truth, that they believe it's untrue now, but because they're unwilling to pay the price in a culture that is moving away from Jesus Christ. Christianity is respected by many in our nation, but there are more and more who are attacking Christianity. From the outside, there are those secularists who are portraying Christianity as outdated, homophobic, chauvinistic, intolerant, and anti-scientific. From religious progressives, evangelical Christianity is being portrayed as though it is in conflict with the heart and life of Jesus Christ, that instead political correctness is truly what Christianity is about. This week, some scandals have broken around the prominent evangelical, Jerry Falwell Jr. Whether these are true or not, we see that it is leading to more and more criticism of Christianity. Early in my ministry, it seemed as though there were every other week there was a scandal about a televangelist, whether through their immorality or their financial misdeeds, 
the testimony of Christians with speaking the wrong message to our world. How do we respond today? Some respond by assimilating, others by isolating themselves from the faith, others by harsh, unloving, intolerant counterattacks. The change in our culture, where Christians are being more and more marginalized, has caught some of us by surprise. It doesn't catch Jesus by surprise. In fact, it's more the norm that he expects. When he prays for his disciples and for us, he prays this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. But just, just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, Jesus is saying, Christians need to be in the world, but not of it. Most of you have heard this before. What Peter does is he takes that truth and helps us put it into practice. And that's what we hope to see this morning. How are we to live in a world that is moving further, a culture that is moving further and further away from Christ? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which anticipates what we're going through 2,000 years ago because it was actually being experienced then as well. Your truth which led the church to thrive during that time is the same truth that can help us thrive today. Lord, speak your word to us. Meet us each individually where we are with the struggles we have. And may your spirit speak into our lives and lead us forward. In Christ we pray. So what is our response? to the ever-widening divide between those who make Christ the cornerstone of their lives and those who stumble over Christ. As I said, there's the response of isolation. We're going to go into a protective shell. Assimilation. We're going to look more and more like our culture. Or counterattacks, where we do battle, often using harsh, unloving, intolerant words. Peter leads us to a fourth way. Essentially what he says in this passage is Christians have to live within a countercultural way but speak into the culture in a way that the culture can hear them. You know, so far in 1 Peter... He has laid a foundation for his message, which is the title of our series, Reflecting Christ in a Post-Christian Culture. He's laid the foundation by telling us what he has done in our lives through the gospel, the resources he gives us for living out the Christian life through that gospel, and has offered us a new identity in Christ. 
And so he's provided the foundation for how we should then live. These two verses, 11 and 12, the, on these two verses, the book pivots. These two verses give us a general truth of how to live in this culture. And then the rest of the book is going to particularize the truth we see in these two verses in various areas of our lives. So, what is he saying in these verses? Three things. Know your identity. Know who you are because you are going to live out of your identity. Secondly, he is saying you must win the spiritual war that you are in against the desires of your flesh. And thirdly, you need to speak into the culture in a language they understand, and that language is good works. So let's start. We're going to look at our identity, our inner spiritual struggle, and our testimony in the world. We begin with our identity in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. One of the main reasons that we don't live out the faith, one of the reasons we stumble in our faith or we're tempted to compromise with our culture or isolate ourselves is because we don't know our identity or we don't begin our living out our identity. Uh, Pastor Tony Evans said, the great tragedy today is that we don't have enough Christians who know who they are. They may be genuine believers, but their faith is just another addition to their portfolio. When it comes to the bottom line, they define themselves in terms of their name, their job, their possessions, or the people they know. See, our identity determines how we live. If we find our identity in our job, we're going to pour our lives into our job. If we find our identities in our possessions or our bank account, we're going to do everything we can to make money. If we find our identity in our reputation, we're going to live in ways that impress and please people. What is our identity? Who are we? The verse begins, Beloved. We are the beloved of God and should be the beloved of one another. So what does this mean? It means that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He knew us. He loved us before we were even born. That we were in his mind. Every step of the journey of Jesus Christ to, the, to Gethsemane, he was praying for us. When he went to the cross and he said, it is finished, it is for us that he died. We have been in his heart and when we place faith in him, we were reunited with him as sons and daughters of God, fully loved by him. We need to understand that and let it make a difference in our lives. Instead of finding our security by avoiding persecution, 
We find our security in the fact that the God of this universe loves us and desires to provide for us. He is our security and our safety. Instead of trying to find a sense of belonging through acceptance of others so that we accommodate our lives to the culture around us, we find our acceptance in God's love. That although we might want people to accept us and care for us, we don't need them to. Instead of trying to find our significance, to be valued by others around us, when we do, we start to align ourselves in ways that impress them. We understand that we are fully treasured by God. We are so valuable to God that he sent his son to pay for us, not gold, silver, or precious stones, but to pay for us with his very life. See, when we understand we belong to God, we don't need to turn and to get anything from our culture. And we are drawn into that love, and that love motivates us to live for his glory. Second thing this passage says is that we are sojourners and exiles. In other words, this world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. We are sojourners here. We're, we're just here for, for a season. We are exiles. We're, we're not a part of this world. So if we don't belong to our culture, that's okay. We don't need to because we're sojourners here. We don't need to accommodate ourselves because we belong to God. We don't need to live for ourselves because ultimately our lives are passing shadows. We don't need to store up our treasures on earth. We're here to store up our treasures on heaven. And so when we are rejected, don't be shocked. We don't belong here. Don't, don't embrace a victim mentality as though poor us because not everybody's celebrating Christianity. We don't belong here. And so we don't live for what we can attain here. We live for what God wants to offer us in eternity. Earlier in the, this chapter, Peter lays out other aspects of our identity. Chapter 2, verse 1. Listen carefully to who God says you are. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What he is saying here is you 
as a church and you as individuals are a temple of God. What is the temple? The temple is where people would meet God. Jesus talked about his body being the temple because in those days everyone thought you met God in the physical temple and Jesus was saying, no, there's a new day here. You meet God in me. I am the very visible presence of God in this world. And Scripture says that we are the body of Christ. If someone was to say, I want to see God, we should be living such lives that we could say, as a church, come look at the church and see how God would live. We are the presence of God. We're a holy priesthood. See, the priest was the mediator between man and God. Man wanted to reach God. He would work through the priest, through the sacrifices that the priests bring, and he would be connected to God. We are a holy priesthood. We are to be those who connect people who don't know God with God. He doubles down on this in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What he's saying is, if you are that royal priesthood, if you are God's possession, then your purpose is, is to proclaim the excellencies of God. We are to live out our lives in this culture in ways that cry out that God is wonderful, God is holy, God is loving, God is perfect. We say it with our words, but people need to see it in our lives. See, our lives begin with our identity and knowing who we are and then living accordingly. Too many of us just don't think in terms of our identity. We think in terms of maybe the commands of God or the expectations of the church. And these become add-ons. Christianity becomes not about the relationship, about the things we do. When we begin with our identity, then the life of Christ flows out of us. And we live as a temple of God. We become mediators between God and man. So Peter says, know who you are. And then he says, even though you are the beloved of Christ, even though you are the temple of God, there is a war that's raging on inside of each Christian. So he says, again in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Our testimony is critical to reach our culture. If we give in to the passions of the flesh, then we see one. Christians are no different than anyone else. Two, we may well be scandalized and appear we are hypocrites. And those charges against the church being full of hypocrites is true. And so Peter says, as you live out your identity, you need to, you're going to be doing battle with the passions of the flesh. Now, the word here, passions, is the word translated in other versions, desires. Literally, the word is over-desires. It says, you're going to be doing battle with the over-desires of the flesh. See, there's nothing wrong with the desires of the flesh. They're natural. They're a part of who we are. I mean, I have a desire for food. That's a good thing because then I eat and I get nutrition. If I have an over-desire for food, I become a glutton. Okay. I have a desire for safety, and so I take precautions. That's good because God wants me to live just like I do. But if I have an over-desire for it, I will be so frightened by persecution that I will assimilate or isolate. I have a desire for sexual relationship. That's good because that unites me with my wife and makes me one with my wife. If I have an over-desire, then I will engage in sexual immorality. And see, the problem isn't the desires. The problem's is when we allow those desires become so big, so important, that they move us into activity that is against God's will and enslaves us to those passions. So those passions actually wage war against our souls. Now, what's he saying here that wages war against our souls? The word soul refers to the true you. Your soul is who you are. So not only do, if we give into the passions of our flesh, do we ruin our, the testimony of Jesus Christ, we actually war against our own true selves. We ask the question, who am I? Who is the real me? Who is the authentic self? What's our answer? In today's culture, more and more, that answer is, I am what I feel. And that's, it's most evident in the LBGTQ movement. Now, Christians are maligned, sometimes rightly maligned, as homophobic because many of us have not been loving toward this community. 
that even if we are loving, we are seen as homophobic because we do not adopt those activities. We believe they're against the scriptures. But too often, we as Christians try to address it by saying, stop the activity. But we don't understand that people, many people within this community, see not the activity, but see their sexual preference as an identity. And of course, you live out of your identity. And so, in, in their as what they're hearing when we say stop being like that is they're hearing stop being who you are. That's why you have songs like Born This Way. That's, that's who you are. You feel this way, that's who you are. That's not their true identity. That's their feelings. And those feelings are the result of a fallen nature. Just like in me, my natural feelings, my feelings are to be self-centered, to want everything I want, to want people to revolve around me, to have God do what I want him to do. My natural bent is self-centeredness and selfishness. Is, is, is that who I am? No. That's a fallen nature within me. If I'm greedy, do I accept the fact that I am just, uh, that's who I am, I'm greedy? Or do I say, that's a fallen nature, that's not who I am, because I know it's not right. So who am I? I am one made in the image of God. I was made to reflect the very character of God. So everything that I'm feeling that is contrary to the very character of God, greed, selfishness, is not who I am. It's fighting against who I am. And so when we speak into the LBGTQ community. We're trying to really say, that isn't who you are. You are one made in the image of God. You are one that God wants to adopt as a son and a daughter. He, the one he wants to make into a temple of God, to be a mediator between man and God. That's who you are. Don't settle for living, for getting an identity out of your feelings. And so what we see is when we give in to the desires of our flesh, the over-desires of our flesh, we are waging war against the very essence of who we are as people. And so he says, abstain from these because they are waging war in your soul. So Peter has said, know your identity. You're the child of God. You're the image of God. Live out of that identity and you're going to have to do battle with different feelings and passions within you. 
to win that war and to become the person you truly are. And when you do that, your conduct will be honorable. So we turn to verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what he's saying is we do need to live out that Christian faith. We have to have godly, positive qualities that people might honor. And don't think they're always going to honor it. Jesus Christ lived out a perfect, sinless life of full love, justice, mercy, goodness, and yet he was maligned. Instead of accepting his miracles, they say you're doing that of the devil. Instead of embracing his teachings, they said you're a blasphemer. You're nullifying the law. So we are to live out the Christian life, but if we do doesn't mean we're not going to be disparaged. He says in this verse that it's happening. He says, they will speak of you as evildoers. They spoke of Jesus as evildoers. It was, it was happening in the early church. Tacitus, a Roman historian, wrote that Christians were, quote, loathed for their vices. You know, they, they gathered together and they, they, they were, their worship times were called love feasts. And brothers and sisters in Christ would celebrate. And as, as uh, those outside the church heard that, they said, they're having incestuous relationships with one another. And during their communion, and they broke the bread and said, this is the body of Christ, and this is the blood of Christ and the wine. And the charge was, they're cannibals in there. The reputation of the early church was not very good. They were evildoers. And yet somehow that got turned around. And I've often quoted Rodney Stark, a sociologist who studied the growth of the early church. I'll do it again here. What turned it around was the Christians' good deeds. They went and rescued babies that were left out in the woods to be eaten by wolves. They took them into their house as their own. They honored women. They respected women when they were not respected. They were brought into that community and cherished. They took they went into homes where plagues had struck and families had left their loved ones behind to die. And at the risk of their lives, they went into those homes. And many died, but they saved so many others. And when they were persecuted, they responded with love and forgiveness. They were disparaged, but there was... No reason for them to be called those names. And Peter's saying, let there be no reason that people can call you evildoers. Don't give them any just cause to call us hypocrites, mean spirit, intolerant. We may still be called those things because of our different beliefs, but let us not be that in our hearts and give them just reason 
to say that we, all, we are evildoers. And the best way to counter that is, as he says here, good deeds. Do them that they may see the good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God. Peter's saying the same thing. He's saying, one, when you're doing good works, don't hide them. Let people know. And of course, if they're going to glorify God, that means they also need to know you're a Christian. We can do all the good works in the world, but if they don't know our faith in Christ and our passion for him, they're not going to make a connection. They're not going to glorify God. They're going to glorify you. And so God has called us to speak a language our culture understands. Good works. And I believe we need to have these good works in, in two ways. One to show their charges against us are not true. So when Christians are called homophobic, they love their neighbor who is gay, they value them, they listen to them, they get engaged perhaps in helping those people with AIDS. When we are charged with anti-feminism, because we're pro-life. Let us go in and come alongside the pregnant women who are struggling with their pregnancies, confused of what and how they'll live with a baby, just like we're doing on Tuesday, coming alongside a pregnant mother, not just with gifts, but walking alongside them. Uh, we're charged with being prudes. I mean, we preach against pornography. What we need to do is step in and help those who are addicted to it, whose lives and marriages are being destroyed by it. So our good works need to speak right to where we're being challenged. And then they also have to speak into the culture itself because there are a lot of things God has called us to that our culture appreciates. They're, they come together in many ways. For instance, care for the homeless. Everybody values that and treasures that. Uh, help, help of battered women. Human trafficking. Centers for drug and alcohol addictions. Halfway houses. Fighting for prison reform. Fighting against racism. Our culture values those, and Jesus Christ values those as well. And so he says, that they may see your good works, give glory to your Father in heaven. 
that they may be result in praise to God on the day of visitation. So we need to step aside for a second because I'm sure everybody's wondering what does he mean here because I'm still wondering. It's saying that people will glorify God on the day of visitation because of our good deeds. But what is the day of visitation? And there's two views. One is the day of visitation, meaning that God meets people who do not know Jesus Christ. And the day of visitation is when the Holy Spirit brings them to faith in Christ. And this seems to be very true that this is going to happen. When a person comes to Christ, having seen your good works, even if they've been critical of you before, when they finally accept Christ, they're going to praise God because of the way you lived in front of them. The other possibility is that this is at Christ's return. That even people who never become Christian will finally see God for who he is and will see the Christian's works for what they really were. Examples pointing to Jesus Christ. And we know every knee shall bow one day, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 1 Peter 1.7, earlier in the book he says, the tested, the, your, the genuineness of your faith will be tested and it will be more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire and your response will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I take that to mean that we actually will receive praise and glory and honor from God, certainly, but even from those who've rejected your lives, who are critical of your lives, Why does this matter? Because right now you may be living your Christian life in front of people and you feel it's futile. You're not getting the response you want. People aren't coming to Christ. What he's saying is you're not citizens of earth. You're citizens of heaven. One day what you're doing will be truly recognized. Not just by God but the very people you're trying to minister to. Let that encourage you. LifeWay's done a few surveys, and there's uh, I noticed two surveys, and it's, uh, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is that since the 2016 election, out of the non-evangelicals who changed their view of evangelicals, there were six, six non-evangelicals who worsened their view of evangelicals to everyone who said their view of evangelicals evangelicals improved. But since, since 2016, there's a six to one ratio who have a worse view of Christians 
than they did before. That's the bad news. The good news is a second poll. It says, whereas 14% of non-evangelicals who have no friendship with evangelical Christians describe Christians with positive descriptors like compassionate, principled, charitable, or ethical, 46% of those who are friends of evangelicals describe us with one or more of those attributes. What is it saying? 14% of those who do not know an evangelical Christian can attribute positive qualities to evangelicals. But 46% who know a Christian, an evangelical Christian, have a positive view. What it's saying is, as our culture is more and more marginalizing Christianity and adopting a less and less gracious view of Christians, your relationship, your personal relationship and friendships with those who are not yet Christian have a powerful impact. So, let us heed the words of Peter. Know our identity. Live out of that identity by winning the war within us. And then step out and speak the language of their culture in good deeds which glorify God.